this unspoken notion that the most interesting thing about being black is thinking about how white people see us or don't. Do they see us fully? And I'm sorry, I have to stand athwart this and say, how much does it matter? And if what you're telling me is this white person doesn't see me in my full essence the way my black friends do, and therefore that affects my success, show me how. Our ancestors, as in civil rights leaders two generations ago, had no idea that we were waiting for white people to be psychologically pristine. And I think we just tend to forget how utopian we're getting about these things. And it makes black people weak. This obsession with the notion of blackness being how white people don't quite see you and what its effects might be. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. Hello, this is Celestine Bolin um, speaking to you from Paris, France, which is where I wrote a recent piece for Persuasion about Eric Zemmour, who has been a major figure on the French political scene for the last three months and just recently finally announced his candidacy for the French presidency in elections next spring. He has been compared to Donald Trump. He himself has accepted this comparison, who also erupted onto the American political scene like Zemmour, a TV character, and like Zemmour, a political outsider. Zemmour has no track record. He was a talk show host and before that a journalist at a major French newspaper. The reason everybody is paying so much attention to him, and the Trump comparison, by the way, is a kind of standard feature of the French coverage of him, is that he is disruptive in his analysis of France's problems with immigration which in context, the immigrant population of France is somewhere between 6 and 10%. Many of them are Muslim, but not all. But he has turned this issue into a crisis for French identity and even survival. He says he's there not only to reform France, but to save France. He's steeped in French history. In fact, he's highly educated and very articulate. He's made numerous appearances over the last three months on television and been the subject of many profiles in the newspapers and is the subject of a national conversation. His theory is that the immigrants to France of African and Muslim origin, many of them from North Africa, former French colonies, puts France in danger of the replacement of civilizations. He has said that by 2100, France will be essentially an Islamic republic. His figures are widely disputed, and also his interpretation has been challenged on many fronts. But he has captured something that is a concern to French voters, which is the integration of the immigrant population, and he seems ready to ride it to the presidency if he can. He may or may not be in the final round next spring. France's elections go two rounds with the second round just head to head. And we'll see whether he makes it that far. But his presence on the scene has both fascinated and alarmed a lot of observers here. Celestine Boland's piece called The New Face of Francis Far Right was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is John McWhirter. John is an associate professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University. 
He writes a newsletter for the New York Times, and he is one of our time's most trenchant commentators and critics of the set of ideas popularly known as woke. We had a really interesting conversation about the nature of these ideas, about whether or not it is helpful and accurate to characterize them as a new religion, about what word to actually use to refer to that body of ideas, and finally, about why much of it is harming African Americans and what those who want to improve the condition of Black America should do instead. I trust you'll enjoy the conversation. John McWhorter, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Yasha. How are you? I'm good. It's lovely to see you and to speak to you. Thanks for having me. Listen, so to start off with a broad question, you thought a lot about the body of thought that, for lack of a better word, is called woke. What is the unifying principle of that body of thought? What are we talking about? Well, I think we're talking about not just people who are awakened to certain leftist concerns. I don't mean the word woke as it was used until about 10 minutes ago. I mean, there's a certain kind of person who feels that we should focus our intellectual, moral, and artistic endeavors on the specific thing of battling power differentials, especially where white people are the ones in power, that that particular thing is supposed to be superordinate to everything else. And to the extent that you are not on board with that being the very center of things, you deserve to be hounded out of polite society. You should lose your job. You should be excoriated in public. You should be treated in an uncivil way in the same way as someone who was an advocate for, say, pedophilia would be. And I don't mean that as some sort of snappy way of putting it. I mean, literally, these are people who are putting forth a very interesting but fragile proposition that battling power differentials should be the center of everything rather than one of, say, 10 things that a person is concerned about. That kind of person who I think scares a lot of us, despite the fact that I think that kind of person genuinely thinks they're doing good is who I wrote the book about. So part of this ideology is to say that power differentials are really bad and pernicious and we should fight against them. But isn't there also an important claim about the kinds of power differentials that are most important in the world, or perhaps are most unjust in the world? Marxism is a philosophy that, as it presents itself, is about remedying power differentials but they're primarily about power differentials of class. And for class may in certain ways play into the ideology we're talking about here now, it seems to primarily be concerned with, for lack of a better word, ascriptive identities of race and religion and gender and sexual orientation and so on. So how does that play into it? Well, a lot of it here is that the tacit concern in terms of power differentials, yes, is something more specific than that of many schools of thought. The idea is that there is something called whiteness, for one, and that we're talking about white power over people who aren't. And because that's so common throughout the world, you can think of it as universal, but it is a specific thing. And then there's also an idea that being a cis straight person is a kind of power that's constantly misused. And you, know, you could argue that that's definitely true. And so there is that part of it too. I think that in terms of our reckoning though, since roughly May of 2020, an awful lot of it has been the whiteness issue. 
and the idea that whites have always been in power and have abused it, and that our focus must be on decentering that power by any means necessary. So why should we be concerned about this? It certainly seems to me that it's good to be alive to power differences in the world. By and large, it certainly seems right that a world in which power differentials are less steep or less present, less structuring of everyday life would be a better world. It's certainly true that power differentials are not just in the world along the lines of class, but also often along the lines of race and other things. So this all seems like, you know, an important insight into the world, or at least, you know, a corrective to what's happening. Why is it that you think we have reasons to worry about some of these ideas? Because what we're not encouraged to think about is whether or not we were sufficiently concerned with battling that kind of power differential before two years ago. There's a notion that we're supposed to just accept that we needed to really step it up, that something more extreme needed to happen. And what we've been seeing since roughly the murder of George Floyd is something that worries me for two quick reasons. One, we have seen a real uptick in a kind of kabuki abuse going on in the name of this supposed quest for social justice. And so in the book, one of many cases is that there's a curator, a white curator of a certain age at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. And he says that he's very interested in looking at art from non-white people more than he had before, but that he wasn't going to stop looking at art by whites completely because that would be reverse discrimination. He was fired literally because of using that term. And I should say, I've done some digging. He isn't an obnoxious person. It wasn't that he had gotten on people's nerves before. He was very well liked. It was that term. He was fired. That was one of what I think you and I both know has become a countless number of things. It wasn't just one crazy thing that happened in one crazy city one day. That sort of thing became normal starting in the spring of 2020. And I think it's unjust. I don't know that man, but it's unjust. And I'm watching people like him being treated that way all the time, supposedly in the name of justice for people of my race. No. And then the transition from that is to that the way this is all being wielded and talked about is more about virtue signaling to one another, whether people are white or black, than actually helping black people who need help. I think about black poverty. I think about black problems. And instead, I see a white man defenestrated for using the term reverse discrimination. I fail to see the connection despite the fact that we're being told that you have to push that man out of his job as a preliminary to helping Black people who need jobs and childcare and healthcare. I don't see the connection. So one kind of complaint is that this leads to a lot of witch hunts or excesses and injustices of people being unjustly fired. I'm certainly on board with you that there's been many cases of that. But I think there's sort of two different ways of thinking about the other forms of harm. And the sympathetic reading is to say, look, yeah, sometimes activists go too far, and that's a normal part of any social movement, but they are, in fact, on the side of the angels. They are working to make the world a better place. And perhaps it's unfortunate, but there's some excesses. Perhaps we should even be generally upset about them. But, you know, they're moving the country in the right direction, so you're on the wrong side of history for standing up to that. Then I think there's another way of thinking about this, where despite the generally good intentions of many of the people who are caught up in this movement, actually there's something about the world they're envisaging that is wrong. Which of these sides do you fall on? Well, yes, there are always excesses, and you don't just write a book about excesses. But the main point of woke racism is not me saying everybody needs to just sit down and shut up. It's not me saying Black people need to just get over racism and pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. That's not 
The point, despite the fact that I have a snotty voice and I'm wearing a sweater vest, that is not the point of the book. The book is about Black people being hurt, frankly, mostly by well-meaning white people. And it truly disturbs me. So the issue is not that there are excesses. Let's say that, you know, a white man gets fired for using a word and it turns out that the people who worked at that museum were just really in a mood that summer. Yeah, life is never perfect. But the thing is, what's going on with him is becoming a norm. And I know that partly from just opening up the metaphorical newspaper and the fact that I have become, along with my sparring partner, Glenn Lowry, kind of an unofficial clearinghouse for these things. I'm not quite sure why, but whenever that sort of thing happens to someone or someone knows somebody who it happens to, it seems like there's this idea that you have to send an announcement of it to either Glenn Lowry or John McWhorter. And that's frankly exhausting because I didn't ask for that. But nevertheless, it does give me a very accurate picture of how often things are going on. It's daily. It's literally daily. I actually started making a log of it last week. And more to the point, Black people are being hurt. What people don't get is that all of this talk of anti-racism is often unintentionally racist against actual people living actual lives. And I think that someone needs to say it who is Black themselves and maybe not young enough to be considered inexperienced and not old enough to be considered over the hill. I just want to contribute my voice to this because I think that a great many people, both black and white, agree with me, but are afraid to say so because of the tactics that people like this use to have things their way. So how is it that black people are being hurt by this? Why does this go beyond just some people take a good thing too far? Why is it that actually it often has effects that are bad for the precise groups that many of these activists take themselves to be fighting for? Well, quick example is what anti-racism these days means in education, where the idea is that responsible school boards and actual teachers propose that to be an anti-racist, you don't submit Black people to real challenge, because the sorts of things that involve real challenge are white things, such as precision, showing up on time and having to raise your hand, that it's wrong, that you need to turn your whole field upside down in order to adjust to the presence of people of color, such that a classics department makes Latin and Greek optional, or a physics department actually starts to consider what it would mean to be more welcoming to Black people into physics as if they weren't welcome before and no real argument is had. That's all harmful to Black people because it's all, with fancy words, treating Black Americans as if they aren't as bright. When you have leading people saying it's racist to submit Black people to standardized tests because Black kids often aren't as good at them as others because of historically conditioned reasons, to say, therefore, the test is racist and we're going to get rid of it is so close to saying Black people aren't bright. Because what it means is you're saying Black kids shouldn't be subjected to a test of abstract cognitive skill. I can imagine Strom Thurmond having said that. And yet we're not supposed to discuss it. And then if someone like Charles Murray says that scientific evidence shows that Black people aren't as bright, we're supposed to hope that he moves to the planet Jupiter. He's just, you know, it's unthinkable. No, this is, this is double talk. Or assuming that if a disproportionate number of Black boys are suspended from schools for violence, it must be because of bias. What happens in schools where people take that quote-unquote anti-racist counsel into account is that more Black kids get beat up, not to mention teachers. And I consider that to be an unintentionally racist act itself. The general condescension involved, the idea that a Black person can't be held to account 
for their actions in various ways. Things that Black people write, things that Black people do, all of it is supposed to be just understood. No, this isn't the way social history is supposed to work. A lot of woke racism is trying to show that this stuff hurts Black people. And finally, this is a little abstract, but this unspoken notion that the most interesting thing about being Black is thinking about how white people see us or don't. Do they see us fully? And I'm sorry, I have to stand athwart this and say, how much does it matter? And if what you're telling me is this white person doesn't see me in my full essence the way my Black friends do, and therefore that affects my success, show me how. Does it really affect whether or not you find employment? Now, okay, somebody who interviews you might not see you quite fully, but for one thing, these days they're often operating under DEI imperatives. And even if they're not, How does it affect your success in life? How perfect does life have to be? Just in the same way as many people would say that a leftist movement, there are going to be some excesses. Well, among human beings, there are going to be some racist biases. They're just there. Our ancestors, as in civil rights leaders two generations ago, had no idea that we were waiting for white people to be psychologically pristine. And I think we just tend to forget how utopian we're getting about these things. And it makes Black people weak. This obsession with the notion of blackness being how white people don't quite see you and what its effects might be. It's weak, it's sad, and more to the point, it's pointless. There's no goal. It doesn't create anything. I'm always fascinated when two positions within a broad ideology either imply each other and are ignored or stand against each other and yet are both held at the same time. I've spoken about this before on this podcast when it comes to free speech. It's really strange for the same activists who say that all of America is white supremacist and the power structure is deeply biased against people of color to then also say, and we want Facebook and Twitter and so on to have uh, much more power and much more obligation to choose who they censor. Because you might think in a society that's deeply white supremacist, the people who are going to be censoring are not necessarily going to be on the right side. It strikes me as similarly true that people who say that a lot of society is structurally racist, which is not in itself an implausible claim, that obviously African-Americans in this country have a lot less educational opportunity, often come from more deprived homes. You know, if you believe all of that, it should be completely unsurprising that a standardized test which shows black boys and girls doing less well than white boys and girls isn't biased. It's simply capturing something about the historical injustices that still are present, whose manifestations are still present today. So I guess, why is it that this sort of weird mental arithmetic ends up happening where people say, if a standardized test shows differential performance, it can't be picking up the actual structural racism in the society, it must somehow be mismeasuring what's going on. And what would be a better solution? How should we deal with the fact that, unfortunately, the performance gap still persists and we obviously want to do what we can in order to close it? Well, of course, with this, to just start with a small tip of what you're saying, the proper answer, if you ask me, is to ask, how can we make the kids better at the test? There seems to be a proposition that to even ask that is utterly beyond the pale. And that's partly because of a tacit sense that whiteness is to be decentered and resisted and that having to get a precise answer is too uptight, that what we're really supposed to do is be communal and be impressionistic and to jam. I literally think that's what some people are thinking. And this is the most shocking examples of anti-racist training materials where people are saying that things like perfectionism or worship of the 
written word as somehow an indication of white supremacy culture. And, you know, that's an interesting proposition that there is a kind of intelligence other than the ones that include, say, getting the right answer. But nobody is putting forth much of an argument as to how that really works. What's really going on is a kind of reflexive anti-whiteness. But the other thing is that the contradictions are allowed not because people are trying not to make sense or they're trying to be manipulative. It's just people go for whatever it is that allows you to say that racism exists, be it personal or structural. If you're showing that racism exists or making an argument that it is, then you're doing your job. I think a lot of people aren't inclined to think you're finding so many examples of this. You're analyzing so many things this way that these things are canceling one another out. Or there is the guiding idea. It's a fascinating conversation that has settled in over about the past 50 years. To the extent that things cancel each other out, it's complicated. It's subtle. But there's no responsibility, I guess, because it would be too white to expect precise answers. There's no responsibility to resolve the complication. You just sit looking past each other and thinking about how deep it all is. That way of talking about these things is tired and it needs to be questioned. I think we all walk around pretending that that way of talking about race makes some sort of sense. But that is a knock on Black people that people don't intend. It just needs to be brought out into the open. I think there's a kind of weird, implicit theory of political change in the background of some of this, what Stephen Pinker might call progressophobia. I think there's a kind of idea that if only people knew how bad things really were, there would be spurred to action and we would finally get towards justice. And so therefore, the worse we manage to portray things as being, the more progress towards equality we're going to get. You see a similar implicit theory of change in a conversation about climate change sometimes. Now, that's an interesting theory. Perhaps it's right, but there's all kinds of reasons to think that it might be wrong. One of which is that if you tell people this country is just as racist today as it was 50 or 100 years ago, they might give up and say, well, apparently nothing really helps. Apparently nothing really changes. So why keep struggling? How do you think the state in particular of Black America has changed over the last 50 or so years. How much of a story is positive? How much of a story is negative? How much of a story is neutral? This will be read as arrogant, but there's no doubt that the story is mostly positive. Terrible things happen. There are sometimes reverses. But anybody who thinks that the story of Black America from 1965 until now is not dazzlingly positive in almost all regards is someone who simply, and I think it is getting to this point, you don't know. You weren't there, and you're not especially inclined to look much into it, and you're certainly not going to find evidence of it in the way the history is usually told. But if you pull the camera back and think about 1965 and think about last week, there's been massive improvement, and we would say that even if there were no Barack Obama. So the question is not whether there's been massive improvement. And not just, you know, a little bit, not just halfway, way past halfway. The question is why so many people pretend that that's not true. And I hate to say pretend, but it is a kind of a pretense. And the reason is, and it's something that I've become really interested in. And when this book calms down, I really am going to take a deep breath and study this more. It's the victimization mindset, which psychologists recognize as a human thing, and which 
The civil rights movement's aftermath of the 60s encouraged Black America to OD on. It's not anything like all Black people, but it's disproportionately represented in academia and the media. And it is a pretense that things are never getting better. And I don't think it's something conscious and practical. It's not that you have to kind of keep a hot poker on everybody's butt to keep them moving. People like that have a sense of identity in identifying as a victim. And that's probably too abstract a way to put it. And so I'll put it in a different way. People like that have developed a sense of their purpose in life as being this kind of victim. If you took that away from them, they wouldn't quite know where to stand because they developed their sense of purpose and security. It's almost a comfort zone in being the Cassandra. And that works for them to such an extent that it's independent of original conditions. And it's interesting. I'm not patting myself on the back, but there's a point in the book where I decided to take a chance. I was sitting on a sun porch in July, 2020, and I was writing about how no matter what happened over the next year in terms of this racial reckoning, with all these things turning upside down, all these gestures, all of these organizational changes, the fact that even then I could see that the vice president was going to be a Black woman, et cetera. All of that happening, July 2020. I said, look at the usual suspects around you as you read this book. And despite all these changes that have happened, notice that their attitude towards progress is exactly the same. They sit with their jaws set, claiming that nothing changes. And I even wrote then, I said, you're going to be reading this in late 2021. I know it'll seem hubristic for me to say this because I'm sitting here in the past. But I said, all you have to do is look around you and see. And you know what? Frankly, I was right. And the reason is because these people sit in this as a way of feeling like, now I don't want to say like they matter because that sounds like it's selfish, but for them, it's a comfort zone. And that is a kind of person. And that is, frankly, an awful lot of the Black punditocracy. So no, they can't admit progress. And you, Yasha, are quite aware that that's a symbol of movements. Fanatical movements are often like that. There can never be a such thing as progress or the movement doesn't have any reason to exist. It has gotten to the point that anti-racism is one of those. One of the interesting things when you look at opinion polls in the United States is that actually African-Americans tend to have a more optimistic view of the future in the United States, for example, than whites. This is true of other ethnic minority groups as well. So what you're saying is interesting about something like a bunch of pundits, but a lot of this seems to be driven by white people. Now, they don't want to be victims. That's not sort of the position they have within this particular discourse. So what is the attraction of this to the highly educated, affluent urban people who are, as we know from a series of polls, whether by More in Common or by the Pew Research Center, vastly overproportionately represented among the category of so-called progressive activists? It is the oddest thing. It's something no one would predict, although I think based on what's happened in the United States, other nations ought to take a look at what happened here, which is that once racism becomes something that one is deeply ashamed of, and that's a good thing, and that didn't happen immediately after the 60s, that settled in in the 70s and the 80s, that to be a racist is about the worst thing that you can be. That's a good thing in itself. But what it means is that it can also settle in that demonstrating that you're not a racist is one way of showing that you're a good person, and talk about how things go overboard, it'll start to become gestural rather than based on any kind of action. 
because humans aren't perfect, people will start using it to be mean to one another. Some people will use it as a bludgeon. And that is what has happened with the white woke. It's all about the virtue signaling, often as opposed to helping Black people. And it's almost a cliched example now, but the white woke person who says defund the police and the Black grandmother in a poor neighborhood who says no more police. Why is the white woke person more enlightened? And, you know, that's supposed to be complicated. We're not supposed to talk about it. That's what we get. And so it's that. If we weren't in a society where being considered a racist was such a terrible thing, which is progress, then this virtue signaling wouldn't have such a hold. But instead, we have a situation where people are very interested in showing that they're good people and also scared to death of being outed on social media as not good people. Twitter has an awful lot to do with this. And so here we are. Social history is some shit, as they say. And I think that that's the cocktail that has happened. I sometimes think about this in a perhaps strange context, which is that I grew up as a Jew in Germany. And at a time in which Germany was really trying to reckon with its past and reckon with its own identity. And I certainly experienced a little bit of anti-Semitism in my life. But I also experienced a lot of creepy philo-Semitism. A lot of people who thought that to prove to themselves that they were ashamed of the actions of their ancestors to prove to themselves that the country had been reformed. They needed to find some Jew and be extra nice to him. Um, and, you know, there are many differences between the structural position of Jews in today's Germany and that of African-Americans in the United States. I don't mean to make a general comparison. Uh, but I have to say that some of the way in which my friends and acquaintances act in the United States, and some of the ways in which I sometimes feel I'm institutionally encouraged to act in the, in the United States, remind me an awful lot of some of the ways that I was treated, and by the way, hated being treated, when I was growing up Jewish in Germany. I wonder whether you have any reflections on that. I think many people in my position would say that the comparison is oversimplified, but I disagree. It's very similar. I've always felt that way, especially in my time frame. Philo-Semitism, there's a, a philo-Blackism as well, among a great many whites. It is overdone, but I completely understand it. I would exhibit it if I were white. I see how it goes. But where that kind of attitude ends up meaning that that sort of person is more concerned with atoning for their ancestors than in helping living Black people right now, I cannot stand that sense. And you may have the same feeling that to be the subordinate person is to be this non-aging entity in some epic poem. It's as if a Black person is this 400-year-old ex-slave. No, we're people who live about 80 years each, and you know we do not carry the burden of our ancestors to the extent that we're often told. Life isn't some damn book, and yet that is what a lot of people think of themselves as advanced in implying. Yeah, very similar. I'm a lumper, not a splitter. Of course, there are differences, but there are major similarities here. So there's one area where I found your work to be incredibly stimulating, but I'm not sure I agree with you, at least quite yet. And that is that you treat, quote unquote, the woke or the Angelo Candism in a literal way as a kind of new religion. So make the case, first of all, for why we should think about this, not just as having certain religious overtones, not just as some of the adherents having a kind of religious fervor, but the whole thing actually being in a quite literal way a new religion. You have to take away the labels, the religious labels. 
there's people who talk about faith and the rapture and the second coming. There are people who talk about hegemony and social justice and intersectionality. All of those things right there make it seem like we're talking about something different. But let's let's say that all of this were being done by intelligent dogs. And what I mean is that there's no language. It's just what do people do? I call this a religion, not because I'm looking for a way to sell books. I started thinking of it this way, just writing articles that not everybody read six or seven years ago. If you think of this as a religion, everything that these people do is perfectly understandable, including the degree. And I find it heuristically especially valuable in that there is no reasoning with this kind of person on issues such as race. You can reason with them about, you know, a hundred other things. But when it comes to this particular thing, I think many of us have noticed that this hyper-woke kind of person, if you try to challenge them on anything that they think, is absolutely furious, absolutely contemptuous. To the extent that they're interested in a dialogue, you quickly realize that to them, dialogue is that they get to try to convince you of what they think. These people can seem quite unreasonable, but they're not, is the thing. Their imperviousness to reason about racism is exactly like the a certain kind of religious person who feels, for example, that Jesus loves them. You would never try to convince somebody that Jesus doesn't love them. That works occasionally, but why try? And you're going to have a long, long road to hoe. It doesn't work. In the same way, dealing with people like this, you find that a very intelligent and reasonable person suddenly on these issues, you can you can see a steel door go down in their eyes. And that can seem obstreperous, nasty, people seeking power, et cetera. And none of that works. You can see that that's not what's going on. It's that there is a religious aspect to this that I know many people would prefer that I just call an ideology. However, I'm talking about something more fervent than that. And then you have the other parallels to Christianity. I'm agnostic agnostic as to whether those are accidental or whether it's because Christianity was already there in place. But white privilege, original sin, the exact same thing. And that's not typical of all ideologies. This particular place of the white privilege as a stain that you can never remove, it's exactly like original sin. The way people who don't agree being treated, as in, you know, defenestration, as I often call it, that's how heretics used to be treated, that you're not even allowed to be in the room, which is different from the way that kind of person was treated, say, 20, 10, or often even five years ago, this particular fervor. Some of this is where do you draw the line? I know that the main critique of this book is going to be, he's not a theologian, he's an atheist, it isn't a religion, it's just an ideology. I get that. But where do you draw the line and why not religion when finally you also are encouraged to believe things that don't make logical sense? You're not just encouraged to embrace contradiction. You're encouraged to not think about things too hard. Once again, that's part of religion around the world. So to me, I'm done. But to me, that's not just Marxism. That's not just a cultural revolution. That's something which I just say. If they were an anthropologist and labels were not involved, that anthropologist would not say that this was an ideology. They would say that this is a religious faith, right down to the prayer. So I'm not a theologian and I'm not a religious person. Perhaps people can criticize us for having this debate entre non-theologians. But I have spent a lot of time thinking about intellectual history. 
And I spend a lot of time thinking about certain forms of extreme nationalism. I've also spent a lot of time thinking about Marxism, which is an ideology that my grandparents were very attracted to and in many ways oriented their lives around. Now, I see a religious dimension to this contemporary movement. I see the religious further of what you call the elect. I see certain parallels to something like original sin and the sort of constant struggle to expiate it, even though that will never succeed. Nevertheless, it seems to me that the ideologies that I've studied have those elements as well. That when you look at Marxists, I'm not saying that workism is Marxism, I think that's wrong, by the way. But I'm saying that if you look at actual Marxists, like my grandparents in the early 20th century, they had a religious fervor. And they had a theory of a kind of original sin as well. If you're bourgeois, you have original sin. And the only way to expiate it, and this is the second time I'm mispronouncing this word, <laughs> is to engage in revolutionary praxis, to overcome your bourgeoisness. But it'll never fully succeed. If you have bourgeois origins, you will always be a little bit suspect. So it strikes me that there are real parallels to that movement. And you could make the same parallels to other political movements, like certain forms of extreme nationalism in the 19th century and so on. So that's why I guess my question is, what do we gain by calling this a religion rather than a nascent ideology that has an incredible emotional pull that draws on some of the same basic human characteristics that religion also draws on? in the way of the grand ideologies of the 19th and 20th centuries. Let's try this. Given that I'm just seeing a fuzzy line, and I can imagine what the objections would be. And so there are people drinking their cocktails in 1937, having arguments on the Upper West Side. They're Stalinists, and they will not listen to the evidence of what Stalin is doing. And those people hold on into the 40s, Nobody was holding on to that by the 50s of any importance. They admitted it. Now, maybe part of the reason they admitted it was because the nature of the evidence was so graphic, but people admitted it. That doesn't mean they give up on Marxism, but certain basic tenets, there was a certain openness to empiricism. Now, of course, there's the kind of person who will say, well, Marxism was just never tried, et cetera, et cetera. But the extremes, there were people who had to say, okay, Stalin was not a god and would admit it quite clearly. But still, I very much take your point. If you call it an ideology, based on where that word sits in our soul today, it makes it sound like you can reach these people. And I truly believe that you cannot reach a person like this and that these issues are too important to waste time talking about John Stuart Mill to try to sit a person like this down and say that there needs to be a marketplace of ideas to ask them to be more open. It just won't work. Whereas if you call it an ideology, we educated people, we know what an ideology is. You learn what an ideology is in college. And there's a hope, you think, that this kind of person might realize you're filtering everything through a particular lens to the point that it doesn't correspond with reality and you need to reconsider. That won't work here. You can never get through to this kind of person. And I know it now based on a lifetime of grappling with them. You have to realize that there are people where you have to work around them or sometimes basically stand up in front of them and tell them they're not going to get what they want. I couldn't do that if I said there's an ideology afoot because there have been a great many and a great many that we now look at as on the dustbin of history. It would make this look easier. And maybe I'm in a bit of a hurry 
I want this sort of person to sit back down to where they were in 2019. I don't think it can happen if we teach people that they are prisoners of an ideology because they're going to stay in that prison. These things change too slowly. So I'm a little bit confused by that for two reasons. First of all, there are many people who believed in ideologies, who believed in them to the end of their lives, even after the terrible failure of those ideologies became blatantly obvious. That was true of many Marxists. It was true of many extreme nationalists. And there are some religious people who fall out of a religion or who become converted to a different religion. So it's not clear to me that if we think of this as a religion, we immediately learn the lesson, or we should immediately learn the lesson, that there's no point arguing with its adherents. Whereas if we think of this as an ideology, then it seems like you can always convince everybody and we're going to be naive about it and just, you know, holding nice seminars about John Stuart Mill, which is something that I'm always willing to do. <laughs> so I guess it's not clear to me that these two things map onto each other as cleanly as you suggest. It's degree. There is an illiberal ideology afoot. These people are annoying, and it's because they are hosting an illiberal ideology. That, to me, sounds like it's time for forums and seminars. These people are adherents of a religion. Here's something, Yasha. We could, in terms of terminology versus reality, we could say that a lot of those old ideologies deserve the name religion. If we shook it up and started again, we could say those were religions too. But ideology sounds more approachable than religion. If we're talking about the hardcore, this is my psychology, this is my comfort zone kind of belief that absolutely won't change, you're not going to have a seminar where you try to approach people's religion. If you try to approach people's ideology, it encourages people to think of this as a current in intellectual history and to think about the fact that a lot of those movements in the past eventually faded away. Whereas here, and now I'm thinking on my feet and I may do it wrong, here I don't see it fading until racial differences become so obscure with, say, about the next two generations that the whole argument stops making any sense. This kind of person is so convinced that they're correct and passing it on to new generations, especially with modern technology, social media, that I can't see it fading. It's impregnable. And ideology to me sounds more pregnable. I don't know if that's a word. So first of all, I'll take it as a compliment that in your 107th interview about this book, I forced you to think on your feet. <laughs> you did. I think you're right that one of the right tests of theories is to make empirical predictions and see how they play out. And I think there's two interesting empirical predictions that are potentially at play here. So I'm going to set those out. The first is that you're saying if this is a kind of religion, then it's much less likely to fade. So I guess one question that we can revisit on another episode of this podcast 10 years from now is, uh, has it faded to some extent? Now, I don't think it's going to disappear, but Marxism hasn't disappeared and extreme forms of nationalism haven't disappeared. But I can absolutely imagine that uh, 10 years from now, there's some other defining political course in the United States, perhaps a real form of a new Cold War with China, perhaps some terrible natural catastrophe, perhaps something we're not thinking of. And actually, these questions still linger in the background, and they're still important. And for some people, they're still the primary thing they talk about, but they don't hold nearly the power 
over rightfully thinking people as they do now, because rightfully thinking people have a whole set of other orthodoxies that they're supposed to buy into at that point, and they're busy buying the books, expounding those orthodoxies. I'm not certain that that'll be the case in 10 or 20 years, but it doesn't strike me as at all implausible that that may turn out to be the case. The second empirical prediction is about the international spread of this ideology. So Ian Baruma, building on your characterization of this body of ideas as a religion, has basically said, well, if that's true, then we should expect that Protestant nations around the world might take it up more easily. Nations that have an evangelical tradition might take it up more easily. But for example, Catholic countries like France or non-Christian countries like Japan should remain pretty immune to it. So what is your empirical prediction on that? Do you buy what Bruma is saying there? And is that your prediction for how it's going to play out? Yes. In terms of what I see at this point, the problem is most acute in Canada, England, mainland, Scandinavia, Germany. Those are the places I hear the most from. Not France yet. Catholicism, less so. There are rumblings in Brazil. Couldn't tell you exactly why, although there's a certain racial history. Oh, Brazil is also at this point between 30 and 40 percent uh, evangelical Christian. Okay, so there. In terms of what's going on, this is a prediction that I'll make that I am happy to eat in 10 years when we replay this and, you know, I'm bald and toothless and we <laughs> look back. I think what we're seeing is a schism between academia and the arts and real people <laughs> that will be relatively unprecedented in this country. I think, I'm beginning to think, that the hold of this particular ideology on academia is permanent. I'm not sure anything can be done about it. That type is already controlling who gets hired. I'm not sure anything can be done about it because these people are utterly impregnable. You cannot open them up to other ways of looking at things. That seems to me, I'm not in the arts, but that seems to me to be the case in a great many of the arts, and it's certainly what many people in the arts are telling me. Now, is that the whole world? No. What I'm trying to do here is get to people who are in neither one of those places. I mean, the ones who are are welcome to listen, but boy, are they fighting a rising tide. But other people, i.e. most people, doing things here in the world where um, they will resist thinking in this way because possibly out here in the real world, there aren't so many people who think this way. It's kind of hard to resist this if you're in, say, an English department in a modern university. You know, you can't stand up to the whole department. But if you're somewhere else, maybe we can just have it so that what goes on in those places, it's kind of a hothouse with a certain kind of ideology, which, yes, I would think of as church. But then in the rest of society, we have a situation where the hard radical left are giving us counsel from the sidelines, just like everybody else, but are not running the show by threatening to call us racist on Twitter and making us pretend to agree. So I have more hope for local school boards than, for example, the typical you know, history or music department at a university. So what's the implication? If leaving the question of religion aside, you know, we agree with you that it's impossible to persuade somebody who is a deep adherent of this, whatever it be, whether it's a real ideology or religion, and you want to work around that. We're not going to try and convince you. We just want to be able to keep doing our thing over here. 
What does that mean in concrete terms as practical advice for people who see themselves as being on that side of a fight? People have to be told no. And when they say that's racist and they're going to write about it on social media, they should be allowed to do it. In which case, the larger body of people within that body who don't feel that way continue doing what they do. I actually have been privy this week <laughs> to an episode of exactly this, and I can't be specific, but where a certain decision was made about a disinvitation because of a few grad students of this ideology who basically threatened to go to social media about this kind of thing, and their elders capitulated. And that sort of thing is not where we need to go, because if those elders had stood up to those few graduate students, nothing would have happened. Those graduate students would have been very unhappy. They would not have attended the talk of the person who was supposed to go. In other words, it would have been back to circa 2014, which was perfectly fine. 2014 wasn't 1914. But it has to get to the point that people are not so afraid of being called some names on this thing called Twitter and of certain kinds of exchanges where somebody sits and tells them that they're racist when they know that they're not. I just think that that kind of person is being given disproportionate power. I don't think it would always be that hard. I mean, if I could really pull all the strings, I would just have people for six months see that, frankly, being called names on Twitter in many cases is not going to ruin your life. And that person sitting across from you drinking their coffee and telling you that you're a white supremacist, well, let them. Don't we have backbones? And that's what we need to get used to. It's kind of like this is an overwrought analogy, but it's like we got used to COVID and masks and everything else. Who knew that, you know, we would be doing this from our homes, you know, a year and a half ago? Well, we need to get used to a certain kind of person who overuses the term white supremacist and throws it at us. I think we could do that. Frankly, I find the masks and the social distancing harder, but maybe I'm saying that because I'm Black. I have a question that you are uniquely positioned to answer as somebody who has both written a lot about this set of ideas and as somebody who is a professional and academic linguist, which is, what should we call it? Our mutual friend Thomas Shutton Williams tweeted recently, the word woke needs to be retired. We need fresher, more specific language. And it elicited quite a big and lively debate. Now, I think where Thomas is coming from is that he's saying, look, even though this was actually a term of self-description, it was a term that activists apply to themselves. So in its origins, it's actually a badge of pride. It has now come to be used so exclusively by critics of that set of ideas that it sort of shuts down conversation and feels stale. But it's also not clear what the alternative to it is. So, you know, in this conversation and in some of my own writing, you know, it's tempting to resort to so-called wokeness or what people talk about as wokeness or something like that. But use the term because it's the one thing that actually labels effectively the body of ideas we're talking about, but at the same time distance yourself from it in a kind of inchoate way. So I'm confused about what to do. I desperately wish that there was a good neutral term that we can all agree on just to refer to this body of ideas, but it doesn't exist. So what do you think? Is Thomas right or wrong about this? What words should we be using to talk about this? Actually, I explored this in a piece for the Times last week, I think. My sense of it is that you have to be careful about the difference between looking for something and acknowledging that things have happened and trying to work with what's happened as much as possible. It's very hard to change language. 
Jesse Jackson basically imposed African-American by fiat. And I think it's easy to think that that's the normal situation. But no, he was a uniquely charismatic figure at a unique point in time. Woke now means the kind of person who has radical leftist ideas and is willing to be abusive about it. It's that kind of person. That happened about a year and a half ago that I found I can't say woke anymore to just mean leftistly wise. Woke means that. I love Thomas to pieces, but to say that it shouldn't won't change that it is. You can't change the way people use words. However, I think that what we do need is a word for what woke meant in 2015. And I think the best we can do is progressive. That was the word that was being used before. Progressive doesn't have that vernacular snap that woke had, but you can't create that. You have to see how the body politic is going to create something spontaneously. For now, when people said woke and you know snapped their fingers or did fist bumps in 2015, now we've just got the boring progressive for that, which is what it had been before about 2011 when woke came in from black slang. But yeah, woke is now a slur. That's good and bad. But yeah, it's a slur. My book is called Woke Racism, partly because that's what it now means. I wasn't thinking about this consciously at the time, but I, in the book, go to all of this trouble to call a certain kind of person the elect. To be honest, that's almost not necessary. It's woke people. Now I don't have to specify who I'm talking about. That wasn't true as early as June 2020 when I started writing the book. It's because that word has changed really quickly. So in some contexts, I use progressive activists, and this is the language that Pew Research Study uses, that more in common uses for a certain sort of segment of the American public intellectual. But I worry that the word progressive has a number of important disadvantages as well. One of them is that it actually meant something very different 25 years ago. A progressive was actually a moderate Democrat. Bill Clinton called himself a progressive. The second is that it seems to imply that anybody who believes in the set of ideas is in favor of progress. And of course, that is not something that you, for example, believe. You don't think that progressives in this sense of a word will in fact bring about progress. So it seems like an unfortunate coinage in that term. So I guess, would you still hold on to progressives in light of that criticism? Well aware that, you know, I've considered all the different terms that people have come up with, and I have similar criticisms of any one of those terms. So I'm stuck. I have my own idea, but I don't think it's any better either. I think my sense of what progressive would mean is that people want change. It's not this moderate sort of person who, you know, just kind of sits there, you know, drinking a glass of wine. I think the progressive person wants to see societal change and not slowly. That's the sense of it that I want to impart here, as opposed to the woke person who has progressive views, but has a sense of how we're going to progress and what the progress is going to consist of that I don't think represents commonly held views as much as ones that people are afraid of. So it would be progressive, but there are problems with it. I mean, to say that people on the right don't consider what they want to be progress is sloppy, and it's not an ideal term. Maybe one would have to coin something Madison Avenue style that probably had a vernacular snap you need that nowadays for something to really catch on. It would help. This is going to sound cynical. If it had kind of a black feel, I think it would catch on much faster because of the browning of society. Um, there needs to be something. But for me, progressive is not that tame sense that you used it in, in circa 1991. I mean, something more leftist. Maybe we're not supposed to say leftist anymore. Maybe it sounds a little antique, but hard left, something, but not woke. Right, right. 
Okay. Your book is called Woke Racism. And you say that the elect or the woke or the progressives or whatever the right label may be, are actually doing a lot of harm to Black America. You also have some suggestions about the kinds of things that would, in fact, help improve the conditions, particularly of the poorest African-Americans. What others? Well, a lot of why I get impatient with a lot of the way we talk about these things today is because I think that we could do an awful lot of good and relatively quickly with certain proactive, pragmatic political strokes that are quite separate from people having kumbaya circles and exploring their complicitness. I think, and I have thought this for 15 years, I didn't come up with this just recently, ending the war on drugs would do more for Black America than any amount of white people understanding their privilege. I think that it would get rid of a Black market that understandably tempts poor Black men to not seek legal work when they go to lousy schools and live under straightened circumstances. If that Black market weren't there, those men would go into legal work and society should receive them with open arms by offering serious, easy to access, and usually free vocational training. So the idea is not to just leave people with nothing, but to train these men in good, solid, working-class jobs where they would have perfectly solid existences. And I know that would work because that was the way poor Black communities worked until about 50 years ago. Not paradise at all, but it would be better now because the world is better. And then I really do believe that school is a problem for a lot of Black kids, a lot of poor kids, because reading is taught badly. And that seems like I'm some sort of education wonk. I think when I talk about this, I can tell a lot of people think that I am a linguist, but what I really am is a specialist in reading. No, I have no training in it whatsoever. It's just something I've had occasion to observe and to read about. And it's that if you don't read well by a certain age, you're probably never going to like school. And that tells on you for the rest of your life. I think that poor Black kids should be taught to read the way reading scientists have found since 1960 fucking five, that it actually works. And so I have a big issue about phonics and specifically how phonics, as in sounding out the letters, should be taught. Those three things alone. And people are thinking, what about the cops? And I would say that those three things alone would make Black people much less likely to encounter the cops. And we could work on the cops, but with 18,000 precincts, I'm worried that, my, that is an ambitious thing to wish to change. And so I'm as disgusted with the cops as anybody else. But my goal is get people away from them. Without any war on drugs, the kind of interactions that Black people have with the cops traffic tickets notwithstanding, would be much, much less. Part of the reason cops wind up in Black communities getting into people's business, a lot of it is connected, sometimes flowchart style, to the war on drugs. No war on drugs, that wouldn't happen. To me, this is anti-racism because it would improve Black lives. I'm afraid that the discussion that we're having now is needlessly abstract and more about virtue signaling than changing actual lives. And it worries me because it's imposed mostly via fiat, because social media allows that if somebody disagrees with you, they can call you a really dirty name in the public square. This isn't a constructive, and in some ways it isn't a genuinely compassionate situation. And it took such an uptick two summers ago that I really began to worry for the state of this country and for the state of Black people. Academia, I suspect, is gone. That's one sliver of the world that I happen to be in. But what about people out in the real world? 
I genuinely am concerned for where we're going for them. And that's why I wrote Woke Racism. That's the only reason that I wrote Woke Racism. Finally, I'm going to ask you to make an even wilder prediction when early in the conversation. Where do you think we'll be on the two topics of this conversation, on the spread of what you call this new religion, and on the state of Black America in, let's say, 25 or 50 years? Do you think that we will have actually made progress, ironically enough, towards being a better country? Do you think that academia will still be gone in 25 or 50 years? What will these things look like? I think academia is going to become wokeademia. It's the saddest thing I've ever seen. I'm seeing it happening under my own feet. And I really wish it weren't true, but I can't see how it'll change. These people are impenetrable. Black America in general, I honestly believe that if the war on drugs is pulled back, maybe not eliminated completely, but pulled back way beyond pot, that's not enough. It's a nice herald, but more. That right there, from what I can see, it would turn Black communities upside down. There's so many issues. Prisoner re-entry. If there weren't so many ex-prisoners re-entering, it would change, say, Newark, New Jersey within, say, 10 years. And so there's that. I think that the Great Awakening, as Matt Iglesias so perfectly called it, I think we're going to see the pendulum shift out here in normal society. I think there's already a pushback that I detect. I think good thinking, maybe progressive people, can see that there is an excess that we need to do something about. I'm hoping that my book is one small part of getting people to think about the fact that you don't have to give people like that everything they want just because they're kind of scary. So I'm hoping to see that, as we said, certain segments of society are going to be taken over by that religion. However, I hope most of society isn't, and we just go back to going to the left with more deliberation. That's my sense of it. And I'd be interested to see if I was right, because I make no special claims to being a great prognosticator, but that's my sense of how things are going to go from 2021. John McWhorter, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yasha, thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.